would be nice if all the teams went out and played like swaggering dandies as the Hamlet do. An absolute humdinger from about 25 yards. Get it. Hello and welcome to For the Hamlet. My name is Ben and this is episode seven of Home Disadvantage, which is our new series. I'm joined as always by Hugo. Good afternoon, Ben. How you doing? Very well, thanks, mate. Enjoying the flamingos as always behind you. Yep, they're back. <laughs> Danny's here as well again. Yes, afternoon, guys. Welcome back. Fresh trim, finally. Oh, brilliant. I feel like a new man. <laughs> Looking so sharp. Um, and I'm really happy to say that for this episode, we are joined by our second Dulwich Hamlet women's team guest in a matter of weeks, Michaela Williams. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. Thanks for your time. Um, really appreciate you coming on. You're right back, aren't you, for women's team? Well, yeah, I am all right. I say well because it's like right now we had our first training session yesterday and I don't know why I'm right now because it was shocking last night. But uh, yeah, I am all right back. <laughs> How was training? How's everyone's form? Um, no, it was it was fine. We were um, we were, were training in, in sets of five, um, so it was nice to have a, a couple of coaches to just five people. Um, we've all been out run, like road running, so we're not used to the, obviously the agility that, that comes with obviously having a ball and having to go to loads of different directions and stuff. So it was an interesting training session to say the least, but so good to be back and, and touching the ball because I haven't done much of that recently. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you know when your first game might be? No idea. I'm hope I'm hoping I'm hoping September, um, but. I, that's me. I have I haven't been told that. So yeah, we're just waiting, waiting, seeing whenever's safe enough to to get back to it properly. Um. Well, fingers crossed, everyone gets the fitness up to the right level. <laughs> Less road running and more uh, sprints, maybe. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, well, more more ball work. Yeah. Um. It just so happens that today we're speaking to you and um. A, an integral part of the women's team um, who sadly passed away last year, Farouk Minya, um, actually received a posthumous award today from the London FA. He's London FA's coach of the year. Um, and I know that a lot of you on the team were um, incredibly close to Farouk. Um, and so I imagine this award means um, as much to his family as it does to all of you. Um, I just wondered if, you know, for those of our listeners who aren't aware of Farouk and his relationship with with all of you girls, um, if you could say a couple of words on him. Yeah, sure. Um, Ruki, Farouk, uh, absolute legend. Um, I'm trying not to get upset, but he, he was just a guy that you could have the worst day at work or you could be going through so much on in your personal life and you step into football and he would just have a way of just knowing. He'd put his arm around you, the way he'd talk to you, the way he'd be with you. It just, I, I can't even do words can't do him justice um and anybody that didn't know him or didn't meet him I, I feel sorry for you because you would have been so fortunate in your life too um and I know myself and all the girls we, we miss him incredibly but I'm so happy that he's got this award because it, it's well deserved and it's well needed the amount he's done um for me personally for all of all of the team um in a professional in and a personal note and a football note it is just incredible um, and unbelievable and he was just such a selfless um amazing guy um and coach and just yeah I, I just miss him so much and I'm so happy that he's got this because he deserves it um and I wish he could have been picking it up still here today um but obviously God takes the good ones early they say or something like that 
Yeah, you, you say words can't do them justice. I remember you reading out a poem you'd written at the memorial service that was um, it was beautiful and um, such a lovely tribute to um, to that clearly a very inspirational guy. And yeah, uh, yeah lo- lovely that he's been awarded with um, with this award today. So um, yeah, it's a nice touch. Indeed, I agree. So nicely put. Thank you for that. And um, props to Monkman for nominating him as well. Um, yeah, amazing idea. Um, listen, Michaela, um, your life began in Bristol, right? You're not uh, a true <laughs> Londoner. <laughs> no, I'm not. Some people know this, some people don't know this, but I, um, I claim London, but I'm actually born and bred Bristol. Um, alongside my parents um, so I moved to London when I was three my brother was five um, so yeah not not a born and bred Londoner unfortunately but I pretend I am and are you Jamaican heritage your grandparents Jamaican yeah so grandparents on both sets are Jamaican um, but yeah both parents born in, in Bristol and yeah grandparents both born in, in Jamaica um, one of our previous guests Nathan, Nathan Smith um, Jamaican heritage as well and he was Massively proud of his family heritage. Are you as well? Do you feel that connection? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I've been to Jamaica a couple of times. It's an interesting one that you asked me that straight away because when people say, like, where are you from? That question is so problematic because straight away that question of where are you from um, implies that I'm not from here. Um, And so when I get asked, where are you from? I'm like, do I say Jamaica? Do I say London? Do I say Mill Hill? Do I say Bristol? So I, I find that qu- that question really, really difficult. But in terms of heritage and, and where I align, yeah, I, I'm proud of being Jamaican. Um, it's a beautiful country with beautiful people, amazing music, as most people know it for. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because it's like, where do I where do I say I'm from? Um, and where do I align? And, and it's an interesting one. Do you, do you have a go-to, like when you answer that question or not? Do you change it depending on who you're talking to or the situation? Yeah, I, I think I do. I think I would prefer people to say, where did you grow up rather than where are you from? Because when people say, where, where are you from? Like I said, it, it's implying that I'm not from here. And if you're, a, you're an English person or a person from London that's asking me that, it's like, okay, you asking me for area or you asking me for heritage? Um, and it, it relates to another bugbear of mine, which is forms. Forms don't ever say black British. And I think I'm black British. That's how I identify. Forms say black Caribbean. And it, Every time I have to fill out a form, it pisses me off. And there is obviously, I've said this to somebody before, and like, why don't you just put other and then put black British is what you want to write. And I'm like, because I'm not other, <laughs> you know, I, I'm British and I'm black, but there's no form that says that. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I normally I normally say, what do you mean? Back to the person that might ask me. And then I hope that they'll say, oh, country or where did you grow up? Or, you know, I would just prefer people to stop saying, where are you from? When they want to when they want to ask someone, something, where did you grow up? It's a lot better. Or where are you, where 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 is your you know, where is your heritage or I don't know a bit more than just the where are you from because it's so bloody broad. Yeah, sure, um, totally understandable. Um, and you mentioned Mill Hill. So did you move to Mill Hill straight from Bristol? No. Um, so my mum's not even in, so I can't even shout and ask her. But um, we were around a couple of places in London. I don't know where. Um, when we first moved, obviously I was only three, so I don't remember much of it. To be, I don't even remember Bristol, to be honest. Um, but I remember moving to Collindale, and I lived a number of years in Collindale, which is still Northwest London. And then around the age of twelve, I moved to Mill Hill. 
Um, so normally, and I've, I, I still live at home at the moment, um, so I, I, I say Mill Hill is basically where I'm from, but yeah, it's around the northwest area, essentially. Um, does that mean you're a Spurs fan or an Arsenal fan? See, even this question, neither. <laughs> so um, I'm actually a Liverpool fan. Uh, I've got my dad to blame for that, but this this is the first season in a, a number of seasons that I can actually celebrate being a Liverpool fan and not be, you know, hang my head in a little bit of shame. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan because my dad uh, wanted a, a team that was red and his brother supported Man U and he wanted someone different to his, his brother. So his tops matched his boots. So he chose Liverpool and that's literally it. Um, so yeah, neither. This is a good time to speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm gloating a little bit this season. Do you have uh, good memories of growing up in Collingdale? Yeah, I mean, so I've got an older brother. I've got a brother that's that's two years older than me. Um, and my memories of Collingdale are literally football. Like, my brother was my idol growing up. And we would just play football constantly out the back in, in, a, in a place um, that we lived at in Collingdale. And so early memories of Colin there's no negatives that I have towards towards Colin Dow and, and growing up and, and it's all around my brother and playing outside and, and loving football and, and, and just falling in love with the game and, and watching it um yeah it's more it's more so when I moved to Mill Hill it changed a little bit and that's kind of the most of the memories I have from from moving to Mill Hill but first off memories in Colin Dow are all, all, all pretty good what age were you when you moved to Mill Hill so I moved to Mill Hill at around 11 or 12 um and that and that's where obviously you start secondary school and, and I think majority of my memories stem from them um and it's funny because I know this podcast is around like obviously racism and what's happening at the moment and I kind of I kind of want to bring that in because when I um I was thinking back to what my earliest memory of, of racism or, or being actively aware that I'm you know black and different to others around me and I think that earliest memory stems back from what I'm talking about in relation to my brother. Um, so my brother was stopped and searched at the age of 11. Um, and when I think back to my first memory of, of, of him, and like I said, he was, he was my idol growing up. And to, to vividly remember him being stopped and searched and how much it affected him, um, because he was out with a group of other white people. He was the only black individual. He was 11 years old and he, he was stopped and searched and he came home really upset about it um, and vividly um, emotional about it, of course. And I just remember being so confused as to why it happened and, and, and why that affected him so much. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a really early memory that I have of, of I completely forgot what I was talking about, of, of Colin Dow and, and of the beginning of life. Um, but my own experiences back then of, of moving in, before Colin Dow weren't negative at all. Was sorry, that, I don't know. I can't remember what your question was. I'm so sorry. That's all right. It's just interesting to hear about you, uh, your experiences growing up in Collindale. So that was when you were like just before a teenager, right? When you were like 11 or 12-ish. Um, how was school in Collindale? How was secondary school? Did you enjoy it? So secondary school was in Mill Hill. So I moved, so I moved to Colin, I moved from Collindale, sorry, around 11 or 12. And then I started secondary school in Mill Hill. So I went to an all girls school called Cocktail um, in Mill Hill. And school was interesting. Um, again, relating back to my earliest experience of, you know, racism and school. Like, I mean, Mill Hill, if, if, for people that don't know it very well, it is predominantly a white area. Um, 
I'm not, I was never growing up the only black girl. It, there was just a handful of us. Um, I wasn't the only one. It's not like the countryside. Um, but, um, but it was challenging being a black person in a very white space or a more white space. Um, and I remember school being problematic in the sense that to be a black girl at school, it was like, how do I explain it? I wasn't the other because I was quite a popular kid at school, but I wasn't desirable in the sense that if I was going out with friends, I wasn't the girl that, you know, the, the boys would want to speak to. Um, I wasn't, I, based on appearance, like school was problematic from an appearance perspective because it was like, you know, you're going through that identity thing of working out who you are and who you want to be. And, and yeah, school, school in that regard was, was, was difficult um, at times. I have one experience that I had um, in year eight, I think I was, where normally for school, I'd always pat my hair um, just because it was just a thing that, I, I always wanted to do and for one day at school I decided that I was going to wear an afro um just because I think my, I think we were doing stuff at the weekend my mum hadn't plaited it back up and I went to school with what I'd call like I kind of flicked it up a little bit to make it more like a Jimmy Neutron afro kind of mohawk um a little bit and I, I rocked into school and I remember my head of year calling me out of of the line to, to go into the assembly hall and she was like she was like you know what's going what's wrong what's wrong with your hair I, I think her words were and I was like, what do you mean what's wrong with her hair? And I remember her turning around to all of the girls that were in the line with me from form and they were like, what's wrong with Michaela's hair? And you know, I don't know how if you ever had this experience at school, but a teacher calling you out on something and getting your friends to kind of back you with what she was calling you out from is the worst. And I remember just being around like at least, you know, 40, 50 other children because we were going into assembly and being so embarrassed. And I remember somebody else speaking up and just being like, oh, well, you know, it's like, it's like out. Like, it's out. And she was just like, I think the person said something like it's up and it's out and it was almost like having my hair in an afro was out and wrong and not how it should be um and I remember just being sent to like student services which is like this office place that you you get sent to and I remember her saying um the same teacher was like you need to go and do something with it so you need to go and plait it and I was like miss I can't plait my hair like what are you talking about kind of thing so she's like you need to plait it you need to do something with it um, and I got to this student services office and they gave me a, a, a rubber band to, pla to put my hair like in some sort of bun. And I remember just being so traumatized by that experience that ever since I never once wore my hair in an afro again um, to school. And I remember being so embarrassed, like for weeks people were asking me, oh, what happened with Miss Smallwood? Like, you know, Chinese whispers at school. And I remember this had a massive knock on effect. And the earliest moment I could, I asked my mum to relax my hair and she wouldn't do it until I was at least 18. The minute I turned 18, I relaxed my hair for years. Um, and that was just because of examples like that, of it being problematic, of, of being different to other kids. So, I mean, that's just one example I remember from school and, and um, it did have a knock on effect to me for years. And, and like I said, it, it changed my hairstyle for years. It changed what I thought was a good thing um in myself because one of the one of the key things that people see when they see me is they see my hair my, they see my color then they see my hair because I've always got some sort of hairstyle um and so yeah so that that was a bit of a problematic experience being called out by a teacher in front of your mates like e like even on like much smaller things than that like mm -hmm want the ground to swallow you up like that kind of stuff stays with you for years and like it clearly has because it's your first memory where you felt uncomfortable like that because of either the color of your skin or your hair or and like, i'm that at that age as well that does a lot of damage yeah 
it, it, it did for years. I mean, now currently I have my hair natural and, and you know, I don't, I, I wear it how I want to wear it and not how I think I should wear it. But, but back then, like I said, it did have a knock on effect and all I wanted to have was white straight hair. That's, that's the truth because I was like, why is me having my hair out and not plaited seen as wrong and, you know, and, and not tidy. Um, yeah. What, why? Um, so yeah, it, it messed with me for a while. Um, but the hair, the hair thing doesn't change. You know, that was back then. It, it, it's continued throughout, throughout life since then. Like to this day, if I have my hair in an Afro, somebody wants to touch it. Somebody wants to do something with it. And it's like, it, 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 and then that triggers years and years and years before of how, how like the hair, the hair talk and the hair situation. Um, I also have another example, which is not my own personal example, but there's a girl that I grew up with and, and went to uni with. And a couple of years ago, she, she got, um, she got accepted to it for a job. Um, but then she went to the, she turned up for the first day with her hair plaited and they basically called her into the office and basically said, um, you can't work here with your hair in plaits because it's unhygienic. And she was kind of sent home and told that if she doesn't change her hairstyle, she can no longer work at the company. Um, and I know that this isn't, that's just one example I kind of know of, but I've, I've, I've seen stuff before about like, I think there's a girl called Ruby Williams that was awarded like £8,000 um, for, for, because every time she went to school with an Afro, they sent her home. Um, and so it, it, it happens to this day. I think that was only last year that that happened. It happens to this day that the hair thing, and it's just, yeah, it's just so problematic. Do you know what, Michaela? Um, my wife's going to really, I say enjoy, but it's nice to, that you're, you're basically say, you're saying what she feels through your, your, your voice. Um, I spoke to her earlier and she said she started relaxing her hair at 11 um, because she wanted to fit in. She went to a predominantly white school as well. Uh, well, primary school anyway. She went to a predominantly white primary school and she said she would have done it earlier again if her mum would have let her. Um, and, you know, she stopped doing it about age 21, 22, because she just wanted to have her hair natural again. So, you know, it's, it's one of many, um, many, many women that have, have gone through the same, same experiences and obviously many that, that you, would have, you, you, you would know as well. So it's, it's, it's something that, that, that is happening, has been happening for many years. And like you said, it's something that is, is still happening. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny because also uh, maybe a year or two ago, I actually, I shaved my head. So I shaved the sides of my hair and I was looking around to go to a barber's and every barber's I went to, it was closed. Black barber's I went to was closed. So I just decided to rock into to a, to a, a white hairdresser's. And the look on their faces at the thought of just shaving, you know, a side of my head. If you saw, it was such a bad experience. And it was just, I don't know how to express, no matter what hairstyle we have or what, what, what situation we're in, it's problematic. Because in my eyes, any hairdresser should be able to just shave a head and shave a side of a head and not, not be seen as, you know, you'll be a raised eyeball that you're walking into any hair shop. And being a black person with a certain hairstyle or a certain, it, it, straight away, is problematic to certain spaces and certain people. So, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. Yeah, the um, and also we spoke yesterday before this about you know people asking to touch your hair and that kind of invasion of personal space as well. And it it was it was um, coincidental that you mentioned that because 
the day before I got to a point in um, Natives, book by Carla. I got, I got to a point in that book just before we spoke about him linking that to when black people were often kept in basically human zoos and like petted. And he said, it's really like, it's a real instinctive um, reaction because it's historical. It's not just an invasion of space. It's so much more than that. And I had, until I read that, I had no idea. I had no idea of that link whatsoever. And um, since you brought that up as well, I've been, I've been thinking about it. And I've, and I've realized as well that throughout the years, I think I've probably been aware that on nights out with any black girl mates I've got, or even just like a, a black girl in our vicinity, uh, people like sometimes there'd be like a queue of white guys like queuing up to touch their hair and it's only when you know you have these conversations and and you you actually read more into it that you realize and you start remembering that oh fuck that yeah has been happening it's triggering because even now and, and i'll be honest without this black lives matter movement that's happened recently up until two months, no, not two months ago, because we've been in lockdown. Up until maybe six months ago, if somebody asked to touch my hair, nine times out of ten, I'll say, yeah, go on. And I'll let them touch my hair. And that's because I've just become conditioned. If I had a pound for every time somebody asked to touch my hair, I'd be rich. Um, but it's triggering. And now I won't allow you to touch my hair, because what are you touching my hair for? Um, it, it, it's like, like you said, I'm not, I'm not an animal. I'm not a, I'm not a monkey. Um, you know, you, you don't need to pet me. So... It, it's triggering also because it's then for reaff reaffirming that I'm other, that I'm different. So you want to touch something because you're not used to it or you don't understand it or you don't have it. And it is triggering in that sense because it goes back to all of the things I went to when I was a child of, and you don't even realize just saying, can I touch your hair? What, what that means. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's so difficult. Um, I, I've been asked in a work context, can I touch your hair? I've been asked, you know, after football before I've in so many spheres I've been asked can I touch your hair or the worst one is when they just put their hand in your head and don't even ask because that has happened multiple times too um so it's just like don't come up in my space and don't ask me that question because you have no idea what, what that means um so yeah if we're not intimate you're not touching my hair no it's like you can't win like you were punished at school for having that hair and then you leave school and you grow up into an adult and then all of a sudden people just want to like take advantage and touch it for themselves or find, or like touch it because it's different so you can't there's no like there's no ground where you win um i think yeah. that's one of the most frustrating things because growing up probably about 16 17 i had long hair i had quite long hair i had, I had a big afro and that was one of the most frustrating things i found growing up was people just just touching your hair oh my god what does it feel like just <laughs> and it makes you and you it makes you feel like what is this like what, like, what are you doing like and um I suppose you don't I, I suppose back then I was a bit younger I just kind of got on with it but you kind of look back and you just think well people look at you or it's perceived as people look at you like you're really different like you said like it's other and you think why are you putting your dirty hands in my hair <laughs> you know what I mean it's such a a, a private and something that, especially as black people, you take very seriously your hair. You know, you, 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 know, you look after it well. Um, so when someone does that, it's like, well, what are you doing? So I, I've, I've gone through similar experiences as well. Mm -hmm. 
and also thinking it's acceptable to actually ask or even touch it because like i mean mm. i'm trying to think of another comparison that i can give i don't know if somebody has a boob job and got really big boobs versus somebody else that you don't doesn't have a boob you're not going to go up to their boobs and touch their boobs so why would you go up to someone and think it because they're different or, or it's not what you're used to that therefore gives you a right to be able to do it um but i think it stems back from what what you said ben is that you don't realize the implications of maybe what that question or the motion of putting your hand in my head has um so i think it's just being aware aware going forward uh, of that and and how problematic that might be you know if we're close and generally there's a reason i don't know what the reason might be but there's a reason that you want to touch my hair then that's different but if i don't if we're not that close i'm in a work context you know where i've got a work relationship what gives you the right to even ask that question or even just do the action um is is, is problematic yeah thanks for explaining that because um yeah, like I said, I have stopped to think about it recently, and um, yeah, you you make the links together and realise that it's a lot deeper than you ever would have expected. So thanks for explaining that; it's really useful, and I know that a lot of our listeners will find it really useful as well. Because um, I imagine that they've done this loads of times down the years. Like, there's no way that they wouldn't have, to be honest. Uh, and I admit that I have as well. I'll admit that. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Um, so that school was good. You enjoyed school and then you went to Bournemouth uni and I know, um, I know Bournemouth uni well, mainly because they absolutely fucking destroyed us at football. Every single time <laughs> it was a bloodbath. Like even our like second team, when our, our first team would play their second team, it'd be like five, six, seven nil. So it's known for being a good sports uni. Um, did you enjoy uni? Were you involved in football then as well? Yeah, uh, I was involved in football then. I played for the uni football team. Um, yeah, it was it was a fine experience. It was, I mean, similar to similar to growing up in in Mill Hill, Bournemouth is a predominantly white area. Um, I didn't pick a university based on you know if I felt like it had a good ethnic uh, minority mix. I know some people do pick universities based on that. I, that wasn't what I was going for. For the course I did and or the industry I did, I, so I did, studied um, communications and media and it has the best media school in Europe. So that that was one of the reasons why I went to Bournemouth. And I didn't really look at, like I said, the, the population around who, who was going there. Um, I did join the African Caribbean Society. I think most black people that go to uni do do that. Um, but I, my experiences around Bournemouth, <laughs> I mean... I was surprised to see that when the Black Lives Matter movement was happening, that they did have like a, a march there. And there was, I, I saw pictures on, in the newspaper of like crowds and stuff there because I didn't feel that when I was going to university there. I, I, I mean, I've, I've been followed in shops before thinking obviously that I'm going to steal something. I've been out on a night out and f assumed to be a drug dealer. Um, and, and this is quite rare because normally if you're a boy and you, you're talking to my brother, this is quite usual for him. You know, the, the example I gave up being stopped and searched, that's quite normal for, for boys. I say more, than, more so than black girls. But in Bournemouth, that happened to me. Um, so, and don't get me wrong, it didn't tarnish my experience at university. Um, it, didn't, it didn't change how much I enjoyed the uni, but definitely, I definitely felt more so, like I, I stuck out as a black girl in, in Bournemouth a bit more so than, than London, I would say. Another thing that I got in Bournemouth, which again, I don't know why, but I, 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 I was told, um, you're quite posh for a black girl. And I hate this saying, and it's not the first time I was told it, but are you assuming that because I'm slightly well-spoken, I mean, I don't think I'm that well-spoken, but I've been told, 
I'm quite well-spoken that a well-spoken person can't be black. And I think it's such a problematic thing to, to be told. And I think I was first told it. I remember first being, being told that in, in, in Bournemouth. And whilst I'm on it as well, pretty for a black girl. Again, what is that? <laughs> black girls aren't pretty. So these are two things that I was told in, in Bournemouth. So, yeah. I mean, that pretty for a black girl thing is mad. Absolute <laughs> madness. Um, and posh for a black girl. That, you know, you've got millions of people in this country who refuse to link together class and race. And yet they're saying that they're surprised that a black girl is well-spoken and they are basically putting her in a, in a class or they are surprised that she sounds like she's from a particular class because usually she wouldn't, you know, most, most black people don't sound like they're from that class. Mm -hmm. And so that's a complete contradiction of all those people who claim that there's no link between class and race in the UK. Um, how, how would you deal with that when someone said you sound posh for a black girl? Like, what do you even say to that? <laughs> what I would say now versus what I said when I was told it back at 18 would be very different because if I'm going to be real and honest with you, back then, around the age of 18, 19, you know, being told I'm posh or pretty for a black girl, I, I, I didn't see it or didn't understand it. So I'd assume, I'd, I'd relate posh to being, you know, white and, and well off. And I'd, I'd relate being pretty to, again, not being black. So I, there's definitely been periods of my life where I haven't wanted to be black. Now I love being black and I celebrate my blackness and I'm, I'm happy with that. But there's definitely been phases in my life where all I've wanted to is, is not be black. Because I, 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 I've been around a society or, a, or a situations where being black is more problematic and more difficult than what I feel like being white would be. So how would I react to that question now um, in terms of you're pretty for a black girl? I'd probably be like, I know. Um, and why did you have to add the black girl bit in there? Um, but in terms of the posh, I'd be like, why are you? I'd actually call the person out and be like, why are you assuming that because of I'm speaking well, that I'm not, you know, black or black people can't be posh or can't be well-spoken or educated because that's, that's not the case at all. Um, but it's difficult because like I said, I, I, I've grew up in a predominantly white area. So I've dealt with identity issues anyway, because I'm not in either group. You know, I was, I stuck out as not being, not being white, but then there, I wasn't massive groups of black people. So then I also feel awkward sometimes in black spaces from people that have been around, you know, very black communities and are loud and proud about it. So it, it, it's a problematic one anyway. I think this, um, well, I know for a fact, actually, that this just plays into that narrative. We've spoken about it over the last few shows or since the beginning of the series. And it just plays into that narrative of what people perceive black people to be like and the expectation of what they think you will be like. So before you even open your mouth, you're already judged. You're already, someone's already, someone already assuming you're going to speak a certain way. Someone's already assuming that you're going to act a certain way. And for us, and, and especially for me, I've said it before, is that you don't even want to be perceived as, oh, that black guy or that black girl. You want to be perceived as that person who is a nice guy or a nice woman who is a contributing member of society. I've said it many times. But unfortunately, you do get these, 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 these racial profiling and, and people assuming that this is how you should act. And people are put, try to put you in a box. 
they try to put you in that box where, oh, because he's from London or because she's black or because she's that, that's how she should act or that's how I expect them to act. So when you don't and you don't conform to that stereotype, it's, oh my God, wow, like, this is weird. And I think some people sometimes feel threatened by it as well. Um, you see Mikhail is saying that, you're, you're saying that um, you're posh for, for, for or whatever. People are sometimes threatened by that because they think, oh, I'm not used to that or I don't think that they should be that. So there's something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Does this, the racial profiling in, in all aspects of um, black person's experience in the UK, do you think that comes from a place, like what's the root of that? Do you, do you think it comes from a lack of integration between black and white people in the UK. And so then, like we've talked about before on this, a lack of understanding and awareness of the experiences of black communities, because then they assume it's assumptions, right? Profiling assumptions. So because there's been so little integration over the past, however many decades of black communities with white communities in the UK, that's when, you know, assumption leads to racial profiling leads to what we've just been discussing. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a mixture of, of both not integrating, but also media, uh, music. Uh, there's just so many different things where people will see something on TV, they'll see a black person act a certain way on TV or in films in certain roles. Black people are always playing certain roles in films and acting a certain way. So when people look out on the street and see someone that looks like the people that they've just seen on the screen, they're assuming that they're going to be like that. And that's another, that's another reason why people make those assumptions. I'm not necessarily saying it's their fault, but if you're shown something constantly over the years from a child, when you look out and see that person, what are you going to think? You're going to put two and two together or you're going to start making those something or you're going to be a little bit cautious. So I think that's a part of it as well, as well as the lack of probably integrating. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think black people have something that I don't think white people have, which is where when they do one thing, they're marked as all black people do this thing. So we have more of a responsibility, particularly I say probably from in myself and how I move myself at work. Because I know if I move myself in a certain way, I'm going to be stood as that's a black person. Like I, I'm standing. What I do is for all black people, not just for myself. So I think we're not seen as individuals. We're seen as a collective. So if that person over there does that as a black person, all black people do that. And that, that's obviously not the case. Um, so we're fighting for equality at the moment. But the minute we get equality, it's going to be actually celebrating our differences because not all black people are the same. And the same going back to what I said earlier, you know, my brother's experience versus my experience. Black men and black women are also very different and their experiences are very different. So we're fighting at the moment for equality as a collective, but there's so much more arms of it once, once if we get that. Um, so, yeah. That's a really nice way of putting it. Fighting for equality so you can celebrate your ind- individualism. It's really nice. Um, you mentioned work. Uh, you're smashing it at work. Well, it looks a bit by uh, anyone's like, estimation, uh, you work in advertising, right? Yes, I work in a planning and buying media agency. 
um, normally in central London, but out of my house at the moment. Um, so yeah, I've been doing that for the last six years. I'm an associate director. I really enjoy it. I focus mainly on toys and games advertising. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's my area. Uh, very modest. Four promotions <laughs> in six years. <laughs> that's, that's so yeah. good. Um, you must be amazing at your job. Like, do you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, I, I really do enjoy it. And I think, I think... You know, I've, I've, I was going to say lucky, but I think not everybody studies in an area and then be able to get a job pretty much straight away in that area and then be able to just climb the ladder. And that's exactly what I've done. A lot of people like jump around and go to different companies and things such as that. But I've literally been in the same company for the last six years. And like, like you said, just, just grown up the ranks and, and put, put my head down and worked really hard because the biggest thing I'm working for is is not only for myself, but then I want to support others. So at the moment, I'm actually training to be a coach. Um, because I want to support, you know, minority groups and particularly women without, throughout my industry um, to kind of support and aid them. So my idea is to get myself as successful as possible, as quickly as possible, sorry, and then support and aid others in their want to get successful um, and open doors for others. Um, so that's really my, my passion and my aim. That's amazing. You won that um, Women in Advertising and Comms Award, right? Yeah, I won a Wackle Future Leaders Award and a Patricia Mann recently, um, which again was amazing because it essentially gave me a bursary to be able to do the coaching course that I'm doing at the moment. Um, and like I said, it, it, it's, it's, the award has given me so much because it's given me a, a platform to, um, just the other day I was speaking at a Wackle panel and it's it's given me a platform to shout the things I want to shout, shout about. I kind of, in work, I said glass ceilings, um, basically due to the fact I'm black, gay and female. And one of the biggest things going on in, in the advertising industry at the moment is, is the fight for, for um, equality from a gender perspective. And I want to shout the shout for all of the other um, inequalities that I, I feel like I have and that, that need more work done in, in the industry. So, so yeah, I, I'm quite busy at the moment with, with industry stuff and company stuff, but it's all really exciting and I'm really passionate about it all. Glad you mentioned gender equality um, because that has improved over recent years. There's been progress in that area, but mm. so so. <laughs> no, I I I go mm, because the progress. So there was a an agency consensus report for just all of the media agencies um, out there at the moment, and what the report showed is that although females take up fifty percent of um, the media and communications industry only 34% of those are in senior roles and the progress has only been 1% year on year. So if we're working at 1% year on year in senior roles, we're many, many years away from equality in senior positions. Um, and then I've got stats for, if you want to know them for ethnicity as well. So when you, when you look at, you know, those that are from ethnic minorities, we make up about 14% of the media and um, communications industry workers, um, but only 5% are in senior roles. So if only 5% are ethnic and in senior roles and you add on the layer of gender as well, like wonder how many of those, I don't know the figures, but I wonder how many of those are black and female and the numbers are just chopping and chopping and chopping. And that ethnicity number is actually down by 0.8% year on year. So technically you could say progress isn't being made on the number of ethnic minorities in, in, um, in, in media and communications. So that was my hesitant in terms of your progress because it seems like there's progress. I think there's more shouting about it and there's more companies showing that they want to do more for it. And you know, it's a buzzword. I'd say it's a buzzword in the industry, but the actual numbers and the figures in, in terms of those working in those areas aren't going up very much, very quickly. Do you think 
part of the problem might be the fact that companies feel like it's really easy to tick a box in terms of hiring and inclusion but then actually it's just kind of forgotten about we spoke about this before we started recording i was aware of it when i used to work in marketing that um in hiring actually particularly it would be a tick box exercise so then you get um a black woman in through the door but then two years later when there was a chance of promotion she wouldn't even be considered and she'd be just left in that role like for much longer than she should have been um and you know i didn't that, that wasn't only one occasion when i saw that so i think part of the problem could be is that they feel like they're doing something <clears throat> and then everybody sees it and thinks oh yeah they are doing something that's good they've hired a they've hired a black woman and then they it kind of they don't forget about it but they assume that that means that something deeper is happening when actually really it's not yeah i mean i've listened to earlier podcasts that you've done before where you spoke about you know you want to get something because of merit and not because you're black and i'm i'm a massive believer in that so i think in my own experience i think me getting to where i've got to isn't because i'm black it's because i deserved it and i've worked hard for it but in terms of ticking the box and opening the door i actually had this conversation with my company recently because when the black lives matter movement kind of resurfaced and stuff uh, an individual in my company said oh we're doing the job you know we have four black individuals out of 35 people so you know that's a higher percentage than the, the industry average and and really actually ticking the box isn't actually doing doing enough you know i can relate it back to dulwich a little bit um to support language of what the listeners might might know so we've got technically two black managers one for the men's and one for for the women's we've got black managers does that mean we're doing all we can be doing for the black community and 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 supporting with the inequality fight no there's you can be doing more to kind of promote in the industry or in my company wanting to attract black talent for obviously reasons obvious reasons as to why you want to attract black talent because having diverse teams it's been known that it will support you with your work you'll get the best benefit from having a diverse team that's that's a fact um so business wise it makes sense but i think i guess going back to originally what i was saying is you have to be shown to be implementing things that are going to want to attract those people and not just tick the box in terms of we've done it we've got one in what are you doing throughout the year to celebrate or to make those individuals feel inclusive like they want to stay in the company um what business are you supporting? You know, every every year, a number of companies, my company included, we, we give charity giveaways and we give money and donate. Are we donating to black businesses? Are we donating to black charities? No. So why not? Um, so, yeah. And you've kind of raised this idea of intersectionality with gender and race. And I've also have experience of working in kind of marketing communications environment. And I remember... Do it like working on a video with with the team to celebrate International Women's Day, and every woman who steps up to the camera is white, and it just seems like corporate environments aren't very good at tackling like more than one issue at once. So it's like, oh great, well we can celebrate that fifty percent of the office is is, is female. That's brilliant. But how many percent of this office is black or a black female? And it gets less and less and less. And I'm just wondering, like, what what are sort of simple ways that maybe companies and workplaces can implement that looks at both issues at the same time? I mean, surely what it takes is, we've talked about this before in football, and I think it's, I think it's the same in pretty much every industry, is that you need black and Asian representation at, in positions of power in terms of decision makers who can then influence recruitment policies, hiring policies, um, any sort of equality drives, anything like you just mentioned, Michaela, in terms of donating to charities, linking up with other black owned businesses, um, 
getting involved in the local community, um, you know, anything like that has to be either be, it has to be black or Asian candidates or it has to be at least an ally. So I think that means there has to be more opportunities all the way up from the ground up. And that, by that, I mean, you know, that black person will have to be promoted from that entry level role. And then they will have to be given the opportunity to then move up again. Then they will have to be given the opportunity to move up again, which Mikado, it looks like you are at the moment, which is great. And unfortunately it bucks the trend. Yeah, but it's pressure too, because, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about how when you're a black individual, you kind of are the, the spokesperson for all black, pers- black black people. So what I do, I know I, I'm just not doing it for me. I'm doing it for others. And I've got so much more, it's so much more pressure on your shoulders than, than if you weren't black or if you weren't from an ethnic minority. But I think it's interesting that you said allies, because I think that's so important. I, I think that you, you shouldn't think that because you're not black, you can't join the conversation of supporting and aiding black people. Um, it's the same with inequality. If we look at gender inequality, I don't think only females should be fighting for gender inequality. You have to have men joining you in that fight. So to me, the allies thing is so important because every single person can be fighting for more diversity. And I know we're just touching on, you know, ethnic diversity and gender diversity at the moment, but there's so many more arms, you know, like I said, I'm gay. So there's, when, when, we, when we bring in, you know, homosexuality into it, and then when we bring disability, it's a whole other layer. So to me, it all needs to be under one, one arm. I, I was asked recently, do you think that the gender inequality fight is going to take a back seat for racial inequality at the moment? And it's like, it's not a either or, it's not a we can only do one at the moment and then another one another time. You know, all of this needs to be done at the same time and equality needs to be there for everybody. Um, and like I said, companies will benefit from that. You, you get the best work when you have a diverse team because obviously you're going to have diverse opinions and diverse ideas and it, it just makes sense. It makes business sense. You, your, your company and particularly, I know we've, we've touched on marketing and media and, and you guys both have backgrounds in it, but you know, you want your marketing and media companies and agencies to reflect the world out there because the people buying the products are diverse. It's not one set of person buying products. And also particularly in marketing and advertising, if you are not paying attention to giving a broad and equal representation of the people who you're trying to reach, then surely people will see maybe maybe more so now after recent events and the momentum that Black Lives Movement is gathering, people will see through that now and realize that, you know, there are companies who still aren't paying attention to that. Whereas maybe in years previous, you know, you wouldn't really noticed it, but I think now people will probably make, pay a lot more attention to that. Like I've got a friend, I won't like name any names. I don't want to get him in any trouble or his company, but they did a deck for um, a client and um, or did they receive I think they received a deck sorry they didn't create the deck they received a deck from a client and it was supposed to be a representation of I think like 18 to 25 year olds in London and it was all white it was like whitewashed and, I, and this, this was this week and I was like this is a deck from a reputable company like a big brand who, know, who should know what they're doing and they sent over this deck and it was like I think they did the classic like three girls, three guys in this like image or whatever, and every single person was white. And but w- what the point I wanted to make um, was that they went back to them and said, "This isn't an accurate representation of London. Um, you need you need to change this because if we're going to be working together and we're going to be communicating to these audiences, we need to make sure that 
what we are doing is an accurate representation of London as it is. And they also said, and this is key, I think, they also felt comfortable saying, and also considering the conversations that people are having at the moment and the events over the last couple of months, both here and in the US, we are quite surprised that we received this from you. And that, like, and that, that was huge. This is like a big client. And yet they felt comfortable in that space to say that. And that to me is a huge shift, like from working in that industry previously, where a lot of the businesses are owned by white men with a lot of money and business was founded by wealthy white men. The foundation of business is white. I thought that was huge. Mm -hmm. This, this is the thing because I had this conversation just the other day in, in the, in the industry panel that I spoke about. And what I called for is that more is done at the, at the top level, because like you said, there is still the, the white males that are leading these companies. The boardroom is still made up of majority in marketing and communications anyway, is still made up of majority white middle-class males. Um, and like I said, it, it cannot just be the juniors or the, the lower black people that are coming in that are, are asking for this change to happen. Um, it has to start from the top as well. And I think the Gen Zs of this world, you know, they're activists. They're, 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 got any, they're not going to allow the world to, they're not going to sit down and take what I think my generation has taken and my generation before me as black people have taken. The Gen Zs are the ones that are out there marching. They're the ones that are pushing all of this through. So what we've got to get to is we've got to get to the, those at the top already that are the middle class males that are whatever age that back in my day, you know, madmen of, of advertising and marketing. Um, so yeah, it, it's got, it's got to go further up the chain and, and, and further back in, in that regard. I think that's one of the biggest things that we, you know, one of the things that we spoke about, um, in a few episodes ago about having allies and having people that are helping you. And we look at the black lives matter movement and it's not just black people walking on the streets and marching now, you know, you've got a lot of people from, you know, obviously white people and, and, and other ethnic uh, backgrounds uh, marching and, and helping and black people can't do it on our own clearly you can't do it on your own you need help and you need support and you need like 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 you say Michele it has to start from the top you the people that have owned these companies for generations and generations and generations they're the they're really the people that that can make the change because they call the shots and if there is gonna if there is gonna be change that's what needs to happen um, it's very it's very difficult, like you're saying, for a black person to come to come in, be at say an entry level, and try and get change because that they're not the ones at the top. We're not the ones at the top, unfortunately. Um, and obviously, you want that you want that change, and you want to be, get promotion, and you need to be in the boardrooms. It's a big thing in football. There's no black people in boardrooms. There's no black people in boardrooms. You've got Les Ferdinand as a director of football, and after that. There's, there's no one. So if you're going to get change at, the, at that top level, that's, that's what needs to happen. And also those individuals that are fighting for change that are at the bottom, they need, they need, like, it's hard being a change maker. It, it's tiring. Like, I, yeah, it's hard. It's not easy. And so it, if you've got, if you're a change maker, you're black and you're at the bottom of the pecking order as well, it, it's difficult. It's so difficult. So, so yeah, it has, like, I agree completely with what you said, Danny. It has, it has to go higher. I think there are good signs that, that you know, the, the work is being done now to like, properly address this rather than it just being a tokenistic gesture all the time. And I, 
you know, obviously I, I don't know every single business in the country or whatever, but conversations I'm having with friends who work for small, medium, large size companies, both in London and in other cities, you know, there's, there's a lot of rewriting of recruitment policies. There's a lot of implementation of new um, drives. There's a lot of new education being written in-house for employees and research being done for how you can link up with the local black communities, black owned businesses, how you can prioritize um, raising the equality in the workplace. So, and you know, obviously you're, you're always in your own echo chamber, but it does just feel like there's quite a lot of movement on that. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, listen, I, I go through my day. Some, day, some days I, I get pissed off and I don't think things are moving quick enough. Other days I feel energized that finally we're having these conversations. Finally, people are speaking up. Finally, things are happening. Um, what I will say is, what was I going to say? What I will say is that um, I've completely forgotten my train of thought. <laughs> I've completely forgotten my train of thought. I won't, I won't say anything. Uh, well, I'm, I'll try and rejig your memory. Uh, <laughs> was it about? Oh, it was going to be, no, it was going to be about in relation to, so I've seen it, I've seen it both on social media. I've seen from friends that have been speaking to me. If you're a black individual in a company, and you and your company is open to making changes don't rely on your black individuals to tell you what changes you need to make this is a big bugbear that i have at the moment where it's like yes we know we need to make changes so all the black people get together what should we be doing like a company can research and look into this themselves and maybe go to the, the black individual and say these are my suggestions for what i think we should be doing what are your thoughts you the same way going back to what me and danny were just saying in terms of those at the bottom can't just be doing it also, the black individuals can't be the ones that are forming all of the resolutions for the stuff that's wrong or not, not correct. Um, and I'm really passionate about that because I think too many people are being asked that are black at the moment to fix things that are wrong. Yeah, Ben, I've seen sort of a similar trend of kind of companies at least trying to like level things out a little bit. And I think that that involves like where possible kind of giving up time, like free time to kind of go into schools go to grad fairs like speak to people who like might want to work in certain industries but feel that they just are locked out to begin with and yeah like as you've been saying okay let's like it's amazing hearing like what you're doing and like your your kind of coaching journey along the side of your work but it shouldn't be all on you to <laughs> To, go, to be going in and doing that work, it needs to be like a collaborative process and like reassuring people that the networks are going to be there once people get into these workplaces, that there, there is actually a potential to progress within the companies. So yeah, I think there are promising signs and people are starting to put out these initiatives, which is great, but you know, it's, it's never quite enough. No, I, I agree. I think... I think although there's progress being made, I think it's it's very, very slow. You know, um, as you guys will well know, I work for or have worked for the last probably six years, probably the biggest gym in the UK. And in that time, I've probably seen one person, one black person in a management position in six years. Um, and 
I'm actually the only black person that works in my branch at the moment across the whole the whole branch um and it is something that I have spoken to my manager about not as in you need to hire more more black people like that but just a conversation that said you know you look around and you think wait a minute I'm I'm the only guy that work I'm the only guy that works here and obviously the area that I'm in is a predominantly white area but it just goes to show that you look at the senior positions and that is predominantly uh, white. Even you look at the area managers that come in, predominantly white. Um, and the branch that I worked in at London, there was a lot of diversity in terms of probably entry-level positions, if you want to call it that. But then you start going up the ladder, nothing, nothing, nothing where you've got someone who is made, who is a decision maker someone that can affect change within 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 the um, the environment so like i said I, although there's maybe progress i think in different industries it's very very slow and i've been in different clubs and different um uh, gyms across across the uk uh, in under the same umbrella and it's it's the same thing i read something recently that spoke about like people look people look for themselves when they're interviewing so if you're turning up to an interview, they're looking, you're, people not realizing it, look for somebody that's similar to them or has similar attributes to them. So if you're, if it's the white people hiring that are doing, conducting the interviews, that's what they're going to be looking for without even realizing those biases of not even understanding what you're looking for. So I think you should be looking for the opposite. I think you should be looking for exactly what's not you, because if you're you, you don't need another you in a company. So I would call for, for companies to look for more difference when they're when they're having their interviews and, and and the places that they're putting job job um specs and things such as that what spaces are you dropping these job specs in where you can attract the talent that might be from a different background while she was speaking it reminded me of something that somebody said to me before where they were like in relation to work you know i don't see color i i i hire and i attract based on talent and this is such a problematic sentence for me because you know, if you don't see colour, you don't see me. And every room I walk into, every space I walk into, I look around and I see colour straight away because I have to, because that's how I've been brought up and that's, that, that's life. And so another thing I just wanted to say is that if there's anybody out there that's ever said that statement or would say that statement, you know, I look at merit or I look at experience or I, I don't see colour, don't say that again, because if you don't see colour, you don't see us. Yeah. Fair point. Um, the, the I don't see colour thing I know is particularly problematic in loads of different contexts and and especially in that one. And especially in like, it, it, people who I've known throughout the years have said, have said like, oh no, I, I've, I don't see colour. I've got like, I've got loads of black friends or, you know, they're just my mate. I don't, I don't see that they're black. That's been said in the past and I've noticed that before. Um, what would you say... Michaela, if one of our listeners said they don't feel like they can have any sort of impact, specifically here on um, race equality in the workplace, like if they're at work and they think they want, they, they know things they need to change, um, what can they do to help that along the way? And I think it comes down to like the allyship thing. I'm, I'm kind of going to half answer my own question. I don't mean to, but as I'm thinking about this, I'm starting to realize that all these conversations we're having, if you think it's all too broad and you think you can't have an impact, you think your impact is going to be too small. What I keep reminding myself is that if I just be an ally and that, that word ally in every situation, 
then I'm going to have an impact. And I think, may, I think maybe that's how you have to look at it. Like just be an ally in every opportunity that you get. And eventually that will have an impact. A hundred percent. I mean, there, there are individuals out there that want to soak up your experience or, you know, what you've been through. So even if you think, okay, I'm in my company, I cannot directly hire somebody that's black because I don't have, you know, the authority to do that. Guarantee if you type online, you know, whatever field you, you're working, mentorship or something around that, you can support another black individual that might be in your industry that you can aid and support in their career development. Even if you can't hire them into your company, you can support them in another way. Um, so I definitely think there's things that you can be doing, even if you might not be able to hire black talent and things such as that. I saw a, um, a job ad the other day and it was amazing to read because you could so easily read between the lines and I'd never read anything like it before. There might've been loads of others, but the job ad basically said, um, we are of the jobs, the job, not the job, the person spec. It said that we are aware that there are barriers to working in this industry for certain, did it say demographics? Maybe it just said barriers. There are certain barriers to working in this industry. Um, Therefore, we are accepting applications from candidates with no relevant experience from other industries. And yeah, now I'm explaining it. I remember that they weren't specific because it was just so obvious. They just said there are barriers in this industry. They basically admitted that the industry in which they were hiring was racist. And because of that, they were going to be accepting applications from people who had no relevant experience, but they were willing to give the time of day to. And for a while... I've wondered of how you how you get around that and still have a, a job ad and specify that you realise that the industry in which you're hiring, you know, there are barriers to black and Asian candidates. How how do you do that? And I thought personally, I thought that was quite a good way of doing it. I don't know if anyone else has any views on that. Just so I understand clearly, so they were saying that even if you didn't have certain criteria we're open to you know having an interview with you because you're potentially from an ethnic minority background or something like that they they basically said that um the industry in which they were operating was uh incredibly white it was dominated by white people and that had been the case historically um and so they were accepting applications from people who had no relevant experience, obviously could do the job and were at a certain level, but who had no relevant experience in that industry. Now, I read that and saw it was a way of opening it up to a wider demographic. I thought that was quite a good way of doing it. And actually, I think it was, was it publishing? It might've been publishing, which is like inherently a white industry. Whether or not that works, like I hope it does, but. I guess one, do you think it's a useful thing to do to do that? And two, is that a good way of doing it? If it is? Well, it's opening a door. It's an opportunity and it's an opportunity for another group of people that, like you said, might not feel like that industry was for them because they don't predominantly see people like them in that industry. So I don't think it's a negative. I don't know if I'm all for how they've worded it, but obviously I didn't see it and you're probably, you might not be saying it exactly to word. Um, because going back to that thing about merit, again, I don't know any black person that's saying, you know, I want to be given better things, in, well, not better things, I want to be given more in life just because I'm black. Nobody says that that's black. You know, we all want to work hard. We all 
you know, want things off of merit. We all are driven. So to me, I, I'm a bit, when it was said, you know, if you don't have relevant experience, it's okay, but you wouldn't take a white person with non-relevant experience. So why take a non-black a person with no relevant experience? So I, I'm, I don't know, I'm a bit cautious of that one, but it's an open opportunity, which is the positive of it, but I'm not sure about the no relevant experience part. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. people that have relevant experience. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. And, and it just goes back to what we're talking about, equality here, level playing field. You know, you want an opportunity because you're good enough for the role. And like you said, okay, the door might be open, but no one's asking for favours here. No one's asking for a leg up. If I can do the job and if I've got the relevant experience, like you said, there's probably black people with the experience. So, so why aren't they getting the opportunity then? Why do you need to put something out like that where it's, oh, we're just going get, to get you through the door. Fine, it might open the door, but you've got to ask yourself the question where there are people with that experience. Why haven't you given them this opportunity? And also, just to add to that, how do the people feel that are in the job that had to have the relevant experience when a black person walks through the door with non-relevant experience just because they're black? Like yeah. that's even more problematic because then it's, it's it's petting them against each other because it's like you're only here because you're black, puts and I worked my ass off to get here. Yeah, puts you on the back foot straight away, straight away. Yeah, that's problematic to me. I think one of the reasons they did it as well um, was because they feared that they wouldn't get any applicants from black and Asian communities because of the industry was so inherently racist. That was another reason why they did it. Um, so I would say they should instead go out there, put something out there, whether it be their social channels or I don't know whatever platform, because I don't know what the, the industry is, but put something out there being like, we know we are aware that our industry is X, Y, and Z. We don't stand for this. We don't want this. You are accepted into our industry. Please. You know, it's, it's the only part of it that I don't like is the not relevant experience. Because like I said, if you wouldn't take a white person with non-relevant experience, why are you taking a black person with non-relevant experience? Appreciate you want to broaden, um, your diversity in your company but like i said it, it doesn't make it doesn't fit, fit right with me so there's ways they could have done it and i like that they you know they're opening the opportunities for black people because that's what we want but don't undermine us at the same time because we we are great you know there are black people with that experience i'm sure and you don't have to get us in the door because we're black we're great like i said we're a great race we, there's loads of us that have got loads of wanted experience and skills for companies so our blackness shouldn't be the only reason why we get them I think what we have to look at is like, what are the barriers to getting that experience in the first place? And is that because like, there are lots of white people who have, you know, family connections that can get them work experience at one particular company that a black person might not have those connections. And it's about leveling the playing field so that they can open the door a little bit in the first place and say, yeah, come and do work experience with us. Come and do an internship with us. Like come and cut your teeth with us at junior level. And then, you know, everyone will have that experience on their CV and then you can interview people and say, right, everyone's here with the same stuff on paper. Let's just pick the candidate who we like and doesn't really, then you're really starting to kind of break it down. But I think we're still quite a lot, like quite far away from that. I can link it to sort of the own industry that I'm leaving, which is sports journalism. And that's probably one of the whitest industries in this country. And recently I've seen a few people say, you know, I want to, I want to give it my time. I want to, mentor like black and asian young writers to give them a bit more opportunity like earlier in their career so that you know when they're going to an interview stage against like white men predominantly who have had the experience 
they're kind of coming at it from a more level state. So I think that's how you that's how you get progress. It's about giving them more opportunities in the first place rather than, you know, kind of sort of trying to reverse engineer it by saying, yeah, you don't need any experience at all to apply to this. Um, but I can see what I can see maybe what they're getting at in terms of like wanting to maybe just sort of like break down the like seriousness of it a little bit, like be a bit more open, like, you know, don't be put off before you even try sort of thing, which you probably can seem particularly in some industries like publishing or media. Um, so yeah, to me, that is, that is a, a potential solution to look at kind of work experience opportunities beforehand. I think it goes back to what we were saying um, before where I don't think, I think sometimes people like the white people are they don't know how to approach situations. They don't know how to approach that situation of ethnicity and race. So although the intentions might be good and they might be, might be well, the way in which it comes across might, you know, can come across not necessarily wrong, but in a way which is just seen as a bit like, well, that's not the way you should maybe do it. There's other ways of doing it. And I think if, if they had, if there was more diversity in, in the company, to begin with then you would then have a sounding board from someone you might you know if you have a black person or a black woman or a black man in the company you might have, you will have a sounding board in the first place to say how do we approach the situation we feel like we want more diversity what you know what would you suggest what, you know what, what's the advice what what can we do and um i think it like we were saying from doing this this show and stuff it's always sometimes it's a bit taboo for white people to talk about race and how to approach it we, we talked about the Rooney rule with uh, Lionel a couple of weeks ago. And that's not saying like, oh, you know, just because you're black, you, you get an interview too. No, it's saying, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there with the same qualification, the coaching badge, but black people aren't getting interviewed for those jobs. It's, it's an old boys club. It's going straight to the Lampards and the Gerrards. And I think that actually kind of applies quite well to this kind of creative industry that we've been discussing just now too. Like, you know, it's, it's not saying, like, Oh yeah, come, come and come and have an interview just for the sake of it. So we can tick a box. It's, you know, come, come together, like with, with the same like level of qualification. And, you know, then we can have that discussion. Um, yeah. I think maybe that's a potentially useful model that could be not just relevant to sport perhaps. More of um, time, guys. So, if no one else has got anything that they'd like to cover before we wrap up, I think that's probably a good place to finish. I'd just like to, to say, actually, that if you're looking at it positively, I'm starting to get the feeling that, and it's particularly after we've been talking about the workplace today and hiring and recruitment and chances all the way up from entry level jobs, etc. To me, it seems like there could be a kind of snowball effect. If it, like, if you're looking at it positively, and if you're like looking and seeing a perfect future, you could have black and Asian people in management roles who would then prioritize race equality in the workplace all the way through that team, like through the hierarchy at work. And then before you know it, you've also you've got a better representation, like Hugo just said, with maybe work experience people working over a summer and then someone in an entry-level job, someone middle management, 
high level management. So would it be that companies need to make a kind of almost, I hate to call it a leap of faith because it's not, I don't think that's right, but someone has to like stand out and, and make a decision decision and hire a black or Asian candidate into a big time role and then say to them, you have the space in which to lead improving race equality in this workplace and then all of a sudden it starts trickling down yeah i i think so i mean from my side and from my industry i think thanks to the black lives matter movement unfortunately i'm saying thanks too but there is now a space where companies are putting this on their agenda because they're being held accountable if they don't so now more than ever i think there is the opportunity um because you will be held accountable if like i said if you don't um and i think I think what it means is, whereas before, even for myself personally, before we're, you know, wanting to support and aid minority groups um, that I already spoke about and obviously women, whereas before it would have been more accepted for me to just focus on the women and, I, you know, you don't want to be ha hammering home, you know, the black movement and what you need to do for black and ethnic people, I would be a bit, not shy, but I'd kind of, I'd try and filter it a little bit more. Whereas now I'm just being frank with what we need to do and what movements we have to make. And I think there are a lot of other companies and a lot of people that are having the same, whereas, you know, this has been on some people's agendas for years and years and years. And now what's happened is allowed them to accelerate, you know, how they were pushing for it and be more frank with what they're asking for than they might have previously been able to be. Um, so, yeah, exactly what you said, I think, needs to happen. And it, it only takes, and it doesn't have to take one ethnic or black individual to, to push this forward, as we've already said. It just takes one person in the company that's like, we need to do this, and then just push it up. It's amazing when um, you use the word accelerating. It's amazing what I've seen in my own company, in my own workspace, how quickly things can move when people realize the importance of the task at hand, right? Like things are moving more quickly on this than I've ever seen before in any company, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm like, I mean, I've been, I personally have been passionate about this for years. And in being too passionate about stuff like this, you get tarnished with, you know, the angry black black woman brush and the, you know now I have full warrant to go to go hammer it because I've got loads of people online and loads of people in other companies doing the same um but yeah so it now it's moving forward I'm being heard more than I was years ago and I think other people are in the same position as well that's a nice positive note to end on thanks for your time it's been really uh educational again i feel like i'm learning so much every time we record these and that's down to the people we're speaking to so thank you for taking the time to chat to us because uh we really appreciate it it's massively valuable for us and also for our audience for sure um yeah thank you thank you so much for doing it i've been in, i've been enjoying all of the podcasts so yeah keep, please keep them up because uh i like home disadvantage it's good thank you for having me Thanks so much, Makeda. Um, I just sort of had to sit back and listen for the first half of that because I was just taking so much in and it was really, really useful for me personally. So thank you so much for coming on and I uh, really, really appreciate it. No problem at all. Anytime. Hopefully. Yeah, re really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. I know my wife's going to really enjoy listening to you speak and it's nice to have uh, a voice for sort of her and, and obviously the other black women um, that probably have similar stories to share. Um, similar stories like yours and, and similar experiences so it's been really brilliant and um, yeah you know it's great we're, we're buzzing to have you on 
And I hopefully see you patrolling the uh, right-hand flank at Champion Hill soon. <laughs> yeah, I need to get back out there. I need to do a run, run tonight. <laughs> see you guys later. Cheers, take care, Michaela. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 B